In his book on discipleship, Mark Bailey, the current president of Dallas Seminary, included a humorous and and true story of how things can change over time and our values that we place on things can change as well. He writes about a young man who always wanted to own his own Porsche sports car. Every day he would look in the advertisements. Even though he knew that they were out of his price range, he could never afford one, yet still he looked and longed. One morning, he was surprised to see an ad for a brand new current year Porsche sports car on sale for only $500. He assumed it was a typo, a few zeros were missing, and so he ignored it. The next morning, he checked the ads again. He couldn't believe it. The same ad was running, a brand new Porsche that current year on sale, and the price was $500. So he figured he had nothing to lose. Bailey writes, so he decided to call the number. A woman answered the phone, told him that he had read the ad correctly. Her brand new Porsche was on sale for $500. She said she was surprised no one had called yet because of the price. He was the first caller. Guy couldn't believe it, but decided to drive over and see it for himself. He arrived at a rather beautiful estate, saw in the driveway the brand new model year Porsche. She met him out in the driveway as he got out to examine the car. He kept thinking to himself, it must not have an engine in it. It did. He asked her again about the price just to make sure, and she said with an air of disinterest, yep, that's the price. So he got in for a test drive. The car ran perfectly. It was in mint condition. Shaking his head in unbelief, he He handed the woman $500, watched her sign the deed over to him, and then he drove away quickly for fear she'd come to her senses and change her mind. After enjoying the car uh, for about a week, he was still bothered to think that he had paid this woman only $500 for a car worth $150,000. Maybe he'd taken advantage of her in some way. So he decided to call her. When she answered the phone, he he told her who he was and then said, ma'am, Were you aware that the listing on this car is tens of thousands of dollars more than the selling price? She said, oh yeah, I knew that. Well, then why did you sell it to me for only $500? Without pausing a moment, she said, well, I'll tell you why. Three weeks ago, my husband ran off to Bermuda with another woman, and the last thing he said to me was, sell the Porsche and send me the money. (laughs) So I did. You know, I've been checking the ads ever since then, just, you know, (laughs) to see. I was in the store some time ago, and a woman walked by me wearing a sweatshirt with a message emblazoned on the front. I did a double take to make sure I'd read it correctly. I had, in large letters, this middle-aged woman's sweatshirt, without any embarrassment or hesitation, read, quote, I want it all, end quote. She had no idea, evidently, that even if she had it all, things in life could change. And something that she felt that she must have wouldn't matter. For every human being who's ever lived on the planet and yet to live, there's a coming day which is going to change the values of everything. Things that we considered really important may be worthless. Things that we aren't all that excited about may end up being priceless. Let me show you where that happened. Turn to the book of Acts, chapter 17. The Apostle Paul is involved in his second missions trip 
He's traveling abroad. He's preaching the gospel. And I want you to notice the core of his message there in chapter 17. According to his custom, verse 2 says he's, he's reasoning with the Jews in the, in, the, in the synagogue from the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures. Verse 3, he's explaining and giving evidence, note this, that Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ, that is the anointed one, the Messiah. He is none other, the Son of God, than the Messiah, the anointed one. Now, according to Luke, this medical doctor who's recording these series of events, Paul is going to arrive in a few days to a city that, by all the world's standards, basically had it all. So if you go ahead in that chapter to about verse 16, you're going to discover that Paul will arrive in Athens. It is, by the time of Paul's arrival, a renowned city. It is the birthplace of the democratic system, which the Western world is still following, for the most part today, in parliament, law, and individual rights. Hundreds of years before Paul ever arrived in Athens, they had set the stage for what we enjoy today in our law. Athens was also the home of the world's most famous university. Socrates and Plato served together on the faculty. In fact, Plato's famous protege, Aristotle, will teach there as well. Well, in this university town where everything from philosophy to engineering, from, from hydrostatics to biology were studied. The, the city you discover was incredibly educated, much like ours today. And it was also deeply religious. See, it was the center of religious uh, systems in that region. It had its famous temple of Zeus and its statues of the gods. And as I I looked at this text again this week to prepare for today, two things struck me all over again about Athens. And I'll give you two descriptive phrases of this city and its inhabitants. First, Athens was spiritually curious. Luke records in verse 16 that Paul, if you'll note there, is waiting. He's, He's actually waiting for Timothy and Silas to come and join him. But while he's waiting, his spirit we're told, was being provoked within him as he was observing this city full of idols. The word observing is from the original word theoreo, which gives us our word theater. This is a word that refers to someone watching a theater take place. He's watching actors. And so Paul says, I'm looking, as it were, at these actors on this stage giving their performance in the form of these statues. And he says, I've come to a, an understanding. In fact, the word theoreo also gives us our word theorize. I've come up with a theory about you. And he'll talk about that in a little bit. These people were convinced that there was this unseen world filled with gods and goddesses. In fact, archaeologists estimate that well over 30,000 statues were standing when Paul arrived in Athens, honoring famous people and, uh, and the gods and goddesses of their, their pantheon. They, 
They filled public buildings and private homes. They decorated gardens and and literally lined the streets of Athens. Rightly so, by the way. For we learn from the book of Ecclesiastes that, that man has eternity written in his heart. Chapter 3, verse 11. The citizens of Athens believed in another world. Mankind intuitively knows there's something beyond flesh and blood. There's something more than what we can see and touch and sense. And these citizens couldn't get enough gods established to help them define that world. They're curious. Look at verse 18. He's delivering the gospel to these. Some of them were Epicureans. Some were Stoic philosophers. They're conversing with him. Some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Literally seed picker. It's a reference to birds that go around picking up different seeds. Here's a man. He's come up with different thoughts. This is intriguing. Let's hear what he's put together. Some were saying, others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities Why? Because he's preaching, you notice, Jesus and the resurrection. And how strange would that have sounded? What kind of God dies? How strange is that? Gods don't die. And they certainly don't die for people. People die for gods. At their whim and fancy. But this God, proclaimed by Paul, not only died, and he'll deliver the gospel, and he has been, but he came back to life. Look at verse 19. So they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming. We've got to hear more about this. So they went to the Areopagus. Areopagus, that's a word, it's, it's a place, it's also a title. It's also known as Mars Hill after the Roman god Mars, where people would gather to to lecture and debate, as well as the formal name of the high court of Athens, which many believe often met here. This was what one author called the Oval Office of Athens. It was literally a marble hill jutting up from the ground, rising 500 feet into the air, and for the most part flat at the top, forming a perfect place to meet. You can go this afternoon and Google Mars Hill and you can see pictures of where Paul is standing. There are stairs carved into the stone. And right before you get to the stairs, there's a plaque with Paul's message carved into it. This was the place where the high court would mean. In fact, to this day, Areopagus is a term for the Greek supreme court. So let's get this, let's get this guy. He's picked up some interesting seeds of truth, perhaps. He's got some interesting beliefs and he's got a unique deity. Let's get him and let's hear about what he has to say. Look at verse 21. All the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend time in nothing more than telling or, or hearing something new. And that's, that's, that's wonderful. Athens is spiritually curious. They can't get enough of the, the world outside the world they can see. But I want you to notice they're not only spiritually curious. They are spiritually anxious. Verse 22. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious 
in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance that I proclaim to you. See, Athens had discovered many truths, but hadn't discovered the truth. With all their spiritual curiosity and all their religious expression and, and, and piety, they were still filled with, with, with spiritual insecurity. Just in case they left a God out in the cold somewhere, they were going to build a monument. That, that's what you call a covering all your bases, right? So the God we don't know that we may have left out, let's build a monument for him, and we'll just, we'll just carve into it to the unknown God in case there's one out there that we haven't met. But it's actually much, much more than that. You see, history records for us that early on in Athens' establishment, in fact, several centuries before Paul will arrive, the city of Athens had been besieged by a plague and people were dying every day. The city was desperate for a cure. A famous poet, who was also considered by many a prophet for the gods, from Crete, his name Epimenides, which in fact it's interesting, we don't have time to get into all the details, but Paul will actually quote from Epimenides in this sermon. He was petitioned to help them. They had tried everything, and they couldn't figure out why this plague wouldn't lift, and why people kept dying. And so they said, can you please help us? And he said, I can And he came up with this particular solution. He arrives with a flock of sheep. And he goes to the top of Mars Hill, the Areopagus. And he says, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to let these sheep go. And we're just going to wait for the gods to woo them. And so we'll wait. And you follow these sheep. And wherever they go, and they certainly did leave, and they went down the mountain and they grazed. Wherever the sheep lay down, you build an altar wherever they lay down. Sacrifice that sheep on that altar to the name and, in the, and the, to the honor of the nearest statue of a god or the nearest temple. Obviously, the gods are angry. And so Epimenides took that flock of sheep to the top of the hill and he let them loose. And when he let them loose, many of them roamed about. They all went down the hill. They rested. They laid down eventually after eating in gardens and near temples. And the Athenians, you can see the entire citizenry following them around. And as soon as one laid down, they built an altar and they sacrificed the sheep there. problem was one sheep lay down where there was no temple nearby. The people panicked. They, they didn't know what to do. Epimenides told them to build an altar to this unknown God and sacrifice that sheep upon that altar. Now the Athenians would later build a temple in honor to this unknown God. So that's exactly what they did. The Apostle Paul arrives on the scene and he says, listen, I want to introduce to you this particular unknown God. And for those of you that are believers and those of you that know the gospel, you know the, 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 the amazing irony of this. The gospel is that a sheep laid down his life because the true and living God was angry. 
and had wrath to be satisfied. And that altar, we know it as the cross. Paul arrives and says, I want to introduce you to him. I happen to know his name. Now, as he goes through this sermon, and we're not going to cover hardly any of it, uh, but we're going to cover at least three things that he brings out. He's going to describe God and give us three points about his son, Jesus Christ. The first point is this. Jesus is the one who conquered the grave. Now, he's already established that, and we've already looked at that. In fact, in verse 31, if you look down there, Paul will establish the authority for what he's delivering to them, and we find it's based upon the fact that Jesus Christ is alive. He is the one who conquered the grave. Now, secondly, and I want to spend a little more time here, Paul will introduce this God as the one who created all there is. He is the creator of all that is. If you look at verse 24 again, he's going to say, listen, I'm going to proclaim this God to you. This is the God who made the world and all things in it. Do you want to know who created the universe? Do you want to know who designed you? Do you want to know who's behind it all? Do you think that perhaps it's just random acts? Do you think it's perhaps gods and goddesses creating humanity, which they believe, so that they can either toy with them or cohabit with them or torture them? I want to introduce to you the unknown God who created the world in his son's name, which is Jesus Christ. It's interesting that whenever Paul went into the synagogue, when he arrived in town, dealing with the Jewish people, he would begin with the Old Testament. When he preached to a Gentile crowd who had no respect for the Old Testament scriptures as we know it, he began with the original cause of all there is because they were inundated with theories of origins just as our culture is today. Paul is saying there is a God, this unknown God actually created the world and all that is in it. Now when Paul used the word world. He created the world. He used a significant word, and the word is, and there are several that can be translated world. He used the word cosmos, carefully chosen by Paul the apologist for that particular audience. Why? Because an Athenian philosopher had already made that that word a, a concept and expanded it when he referred to it, and with that word spoke of the world of politics the world of this democratic experiment, so to speak, the order and the arrangement of this system. It didn't just appear. It, it, it was created and designed by these leaders in Athens. And he used the word cosmos to speak of that political system. Plato, another scholar of Athens, use this word. In fact, I found it interesting that he uses the word cosmos to refer to the order and arrangement in which a woman puts on her makeup. This layer first and then that layer next. He probably got into trouble with Mrs. Plato for using her as an illustration. This is the order of the face. This is the arrangement of cosmetics from cosmos. So Paul is saying, whenever you detect the arrangement of the universe, whenever you detect the order of your own makeup, you need to understand it has been created by 
this unknown God. Now, he will later explain to the Colossians, for by him, that is the Son of God, Jesus Christ, all things were created, both visible and invisible, which I love because Paul has no idea what's invisible. The microscope won't be invented for centuries. In fact, the magnifying glass wasn't even invented until after Paul died. But he speaks with authority that everything created that which we can see and even invisible things which we can't has been, been created through him and for him. Colossians 1.16, the psalmist David put it this way, the heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanses declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech and night unto night reveals knowledge. I love the way Eugene Peterson paraphrased it in the message. He put that text this way, God's glory is on tour in the sky. God craft on exhibit across the horizon. Madam Day holds classes every morning. Professor Knight lectures every evening. Paul says to them, you need to understand that that this unknown God conquered the grave But he also created all that is. Those things which are visible and that which is invisible. In the 1800s, the theory that now dominates our world by a man named Charles Darwin who believed that the cell, which is the smallest unit of life classified as a living living being. In Darwin's day, he and his Protégé believed that the cell was a simple lump of carbon. Trouble is he believed that and based his theory on what he could not see and therefore did not know. But he was honest enough to admit, and I quote, if it can be demonstrated that any complex organ existed which could not possibly have been formed by numerous successive slight modifications, my theory would absolutely break down. And that's exactly what happened in 1930, even though our world continues to ignore the implications. Why? Because in 1930, there was an invention called the electron microscope. The complexity of the single cell was now an open book, and it was a staggering discovery. Because hidden from view all this time was not a lump of carbon, but a volume, a library of volumes of information for inside the nucleus of each cell was this chemically coiled strand called DNA that he knew nothing of. Let me read one description of our own human development. Once the egg and the sperm share their inheritance, the DNA in every individual's body begins to split as it's forming. Splits down the center of every gene, much as the teeth of a zipper pull apart. DNA reforms itself each time the cell divides, each cell having the identical DNA. But along the way, cells begin to specialize. And yet, each cell carries the entire instruction manual of 100,000 genes. The DNA contains instruction that if it were written out would fill a thousand volumes, each book 600 pages long. A nerve cell, however, begins to specialize according to information from, let's say, volume four. 
while a kidney cell begins to function according to information it has from, say, volume 25. But both cells still carry all of the information of the entire library within each nucleus. Not evolving, not adapting, but immediately acting upon the information it already carries. I know this is tedious. Let me say one other thing about this. The DNA is so compacted in your body that all the genes in your body's cells could fit into an ice cube, one little ice cube. However, if the DNA were unwound and joined together end to end, the strand from your body would stretch from the earth to the sun and back again more than 400 times. In other words, ladies and gentlemen, it has been demonstrated that a complex organ exists which could not possibly have been formed by numerous successive slight modifications. Darwin wrote a letter to a close friend which was published after his death, and it isn't in your science textbooks either, by the way. He wrote these words, I am conscious that I am in an utterly hopeless muddle I cannot think that the world as we see it is the result of chance. And yet I cannot look at each separate thing as a result of design. Again, I say I am and shall ever remain in a hopeless muddle. You say if, if, if only Darwin had, had owned an electron microscope. He didn't. But he did have this sermon where Paul is speaking of things he knows nothing of by divine inspiration, that God has created that which is visible and that which is invisible. And Paul effectively is saying to his generation of evolutionists and ours that if you want to believe in something that may be proven wrong by the next invention, go ahead. But I am, I'm here to introduce to you the creator of unbelievably complex design, both visible and invisible. Paul had no idea. Can you imagine what the Hubble telescope has shown us of what David wrote about not knowing? A fraction of what we know with now understanding that there are billions of galaxies. Have you seen those pictures? And yet, all the way down, you have the complexity of the individual cell's nucleus discovered by an electron microscope. And he can say with divine inspiration, let me introduce you to the Son of God who is the Messiah. He is the one who conquered the grave. He is the one who created all there is. Thirdly, Paul will tell them that he is the Son of God, this Messiah who is coming to judge the world. Look at verse 30. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. I mean, Paul has hardly begun preaching, and he's already talking about repentance. He wouldn't work well today. Why? Why do we need to repent, turn from sin? Why? Because, verse 31, this God, this unknown God, has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness or by a right standard, 
through a man, capital M, the God-man, this anointed one, whom he's appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. John will clarify that when he writes, for not even the Father, God the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to his Son. He gave to the Son the authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. See, that day when all the world of unbelievers will be resurrected and they will stand at the judgment of God with Christ as the judge. Revelation chapter 20 spells it out clearly. They will be judged and cast into the lake of fire. And you see, ladies and gentlemen, that is the crux of the problem. That is the problem of the gospel. We were doing so well to talk about the fact that he rose from the dead, we buy that. We're not too sure about this stuff about him creating, but okay, that's nice. We're glad you believe that. But this idea of eternal judgment, now you've really gone over the edge. That's the problem. If Christ really did rise from the dead, conquering the grave, if he really does offer salvation through his cross work alone, if he really was the creating agent of the triune God and through his mouth and by his words spoke the worlds into existence, even designing by his word all that's necessary to propagate life in, in all of its unique forms all the way down to the invisible molecular level, if all of that's true, if he created the world and designed you for immortality and me as well, then maybe this point's true as well. That he will come and judge the world and all who believe will enter heaven and all others unto eternal judgment. Isn't that the reason the world has such heartburn over the first two points? Because if they're true, the third point is true. That's the reason to reject the first two. Time Magazine will hit the shelves tomorrow. One of my staff members gave me the online version. It's a title article, and the cover is of hell. It's a picture of people in hell by a master's painting. And the headlines read this. What if there's no hell? You see, isn't that really the issue? Isn't that the troubling point? It goes on to quote an extensive interview with a pastor named Rob Bell, who's been in the emergent church, who's finally stated his disbelief in a book entitled Love Wins, which has hit the shelves. In this book, he wrote, Bell argues that we cannot know for certainty about hell, and in the end, everyone experiences the love of God in some way, shape, or another. Hell will not last forever for anyone. He's created a firestorm with his book, uh, not because it's all that good or all that new. In fact, it isn't. It's old stuff. Harry Emerson Fosdick could have written it 150 years ago. The, the, the reason it's created a firestorm is this man is supposedly inside the evangelical camp pastoring a church today of 7,000 people in Michigan. But I want you to know what he said in the interview on Is Hell for Real? Bell said, when we get to what happens when we die, we don't have any video footage, so we're effectively speculating about hell. The journalist interviewing him sort of poses a question to the audience. 
is Rob Bell's Christianity, which is less judgmental, more fluid, on the rise? Bell answers, quote, I have long wondered if there is a massive shift coming in what it means to be a Christian. Something new is in the air. No, there isn't. It's really just old stuff. It goes all the way back to the garden with the first question to the human race. Did God really say that? Is Paul speculating here? Does it sound like it's up for a vote? Is he uncertain? Bell writes in his book, Love Wins, people, and I quote him, have been taught that Christians will spend forever in a peaceful, joyous place called heaven, while the rest of humanity spends forever in torment in hell. This is misguided, toxic, and ultimately subverts the contagious spread of Jesus' message of love. See, that's the problem, isn't it? you got to stop talking about hell and judgment. We'd like to buy into most of the other stuff in there, but not that. Earlier, by the way, in chapter 10, I think of the apostle Peter who's preaching. And he said, God has ordered us. By the way, that really hasn't changed. God has ordered us to solemnly testify that Jesus Christ is the one who will judge the living and the dead. Jesus Christ said with his own lips in one of his own sermons that unbelievers will go away to eternal punishment, but those who believe into eternal life. We don't need video of that. Matthew 25, verse 46. The same word for eternal heaven is used for eternal hell. You know, I've never found anybody who held to the fact that maybe heaven isn't forever. Only that hell isn't. Did John, the apostle, and Peter, and Paul, and our Lord sound like they're speculating? No, ladies and gentlemen, this is the gospel. There is a hell to shun and a heaven to win. I find it ironic that this apostate pastor interviewed by Time Magazine is the pastor of a church named Mars Hill. Named after the place where Paul now stands to deliver the news that Jesus Christ is going to come and judge the world. And now this pseudo-pastor delivers the news from a church named Mars Hill that Paul was evidently speculating. He didn't have any video footage. And you know what? He didn't. And, and I'll tell you something else Paul didn't have. He didn't have an electron microscope either. The tragedy is, ladies and gentlemen, and you need to be prepared for this even, even more so today as we worship our living Lord, those of us who know him by faith, as you're going to go out in the world because Time Magazine is going to hit the shelves. They're going to see it at Harris Teeter, right to my left, on those racks. I'd like to buy them also. Nobody else can see them, but I, I won't waste the money. Is hell for real? And they go to a supposed evangelical pastor who could deliver the gospel but really doesn't believe it. And millions of people are going to effectively walk away with his answer that says, basically, don't lose your shirt. Don't get all in a lather. Hell isn't what the Bible seems to say it is. Something new is in the air. Paul speaks to this 
university crowd of educated erudites, spiritually curious, but don't miss it, spiritually anxious people. And he says, I want to introduce to you this unknown God. He conquered the grave. He created all there is. He's coming in judgment. And there are three reactions very quickly to his sermon. I'll just read the text, verse 32, the middle part. Some began to sneer, that is, they rejected it. Others said, we're going to hear you again about this. We're, we're, we're even more curious than ever. Verse 34, and some believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite. That's interesting. One of the high court members converted to Jesus Christ there, then and there, and a woman named Damaris. And I wonder which category represents you today, my friend. Critical? Curious? Or converted? By faith in Christ alone. I'll tell you about an invention that has really bothered me. Several years ago, in fact, it's about three years now, I received in my mailbox a letter from the town of Cary. I pulled it out and looked at it. It took me a while before I realized why I was looking at pictures of my pickup truck on Walnut Street. <laughs> and then I realized that it was a notice of a violation. I had been photographed going through an intersection when the light was clearly red. I never saw it red. I, I run yellow lights. I do not run red lights, right? You with me? Somebody from the town of Cary came up to me after an earlier service and he said, Stephen, I, I work with that. And you need to understand, we've designed those things to give you time to get through the intersection before the camera flashes. And I said, yeah, find another church. No, I didn't. I didn't say that. The notice told me to sign you know, this, this, this piece of paper and send in my money to avoid an afternoon in court. I mean, there's really no way to argue with it. It's there. It's on the record. So I sent in the money. Although I did read about a guy who thought he'd be a, a smart aleck. This is funny. He got one of those notices in the mail with pictures of his car running a red light. He was told to sign the form and mail in $40. So he thought he'd, you know, be a wise guy. And he'd respond in kind, so he took a photograph of two $20 bills and mailed them in instead. <laughs> a week later, he got another letter from the town with a picture enclosed. This time it was a photograph of a pair of handcuffs. <laughs> and he mailed in his money. Ladies and gentlemen, before we wrap this up, let me tell you the judge of the universe has ways beyond any invention we could ever imagine. Way beyond the electron microscope, way beyond the Hubble telescope, way beyond motion-detecting digital cameras. He can see your heart and mine. He can see your immaterial thoughts. He can weigh your motives. It's all in the divine record. There is footage. And the world of unbelievers will be judged as the books are opened, literally the footage revealed. Those who've come to faith in Christ, the tapes have been wiped clean. There's nothing against your record. 
Paul is standing here on Mars Hill, the very place Epimenides released the sacrificial sheep to find their way into the path of angry gods. I can't help but think how precious is our gospel. Because we know that the Lamb of God purposefully walked into the clutches of a a wrathful God, the Father, with this plan they had designed before the foundation of the world to pay for the sins of the world, and he was sacrificed on a tree. The epidemic of sin, for those who believe, is forever removed. We are clothed with his righteousness, and we will stand in him and with him and by him and enjoy him forever one day. Will you believe in him? Have you? Let me introduce him to you. This forgotten God, his name is Jesus. He is the conqueror of the grave. He is the creator of all that is. He is the coming judge of the human race. Believe in him and be saved forever. Let me tell you as well, friends, that there is a greater need than ever before for the clarity of the gospel, not just from this pulpit, but from your life. And that includes the uncomfortable nature of the gospel. I can't believe how many pastors, when a microphone is put in their face and they're asked the question about hell, whether it's the Schulers or the Olsteins or the Bells, they'll say, well, you know, we're going to leave that all up to God. You know what? God has left it up for us to deliver the gospel. That is the gospel. So let me encourage you as you go out there into your world. It isn't just that there is a heaven to win. There is a hell to shun. Be saved, for the day of wrath will come. And and so we can celebrate the cross today because of what it represents for us. It is. And along with that, the grave that's empty. The foundation of our faith, which we with certainty believe. 